Bye. <laughs> All right, so the backstory is we're trying to find a quiet room, but, you know, <laughs> we're trying to find a quiet room, and none of the rooms we've walked into have been empty, and so now I'm trying to find the breastfeeding room, which I've actually breastfed in, but now I can't find it. But it's like we're sort of a couple, a drunk couple at a Christmas party looking for somewhere to have sex. Or Just... trying to copy their asses, you know. <laughs> I can't find it. It's such a shame that this podcast isn't visual because I reckon an episode where you're photocopying your ass would be a real highlight. Yes, you you may be onto something there. Or not, or not, not also is an option. Just Should we keep this door here. Okay. So we'll we just, just I just confidently walked her into an electrical cupboard and then started singing, why don't we do it in the electrical cupboard? Hey, there is restroom. Oh, we found the breastfeeding room. Okay. Oh, it's called the restroom. Not, I thought it was called in front of that. the breastroom. Is yeah, anyone in the privacy room, not in use. See? Okay, let's go. All right, so here we are. Oh, Welcome oh. to Chat 10 Looks 3. We are in a... Um, a room that I've never even knew existed in the bowels of the ABC. Ah, so no one can come in for a sneaky purr. Convention would now dictate that I breastfeed you, but... (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Would you like the... um... Look, I'll have... You have the comfy chair. I'll have the um, uncomfy chair. Uh, and... Oh, passive-aggressive, obviously. <laughs> all right, so... Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so right. here we are. Um... There's also a sharps disposal unit here. Right. Hmm, okay, well, this is... You learn something new every day. If any of our other little bolt holes had been free, I wouldn't have known this existed. Look, isn't it lovely? It is. So, um, welcome to Chat 10 Looks 3. <laughs> Aren't you glad we rolled well, on that we little... We do it in the electrical colours. Stop singing. It's going to go Singing's my viral. on the podcast. Yeah, I know. Um, now... What's been happening? What have you been reading? What have you been doing? What's going on with you? Well, do you know, last night I watched a film. That is rare for you. I know. Because you have no time and you never watch films. I never watch films. And last night I said to Jeremy, I want to watch a film and I know which film I want to watch. So um, I had a couple of days off last week. We went away with some friends who were telling me about this film called Chef. And it was made last year. came out, obviously, to some fanfare, all of which I missed. It's by uh, directed written and starred in by John Favreau, who's like one of those sort of... He's directed some really big movies like, you know... Um, oh. Is he a comedian? Is he he, he's sort of a comic actor and yeah. he's, he was in Swingers and he was in um, uh, Very Bad Things and The Breakup. So he's that sort of... Right. Wearing a sort of lounge chic shirt and being mm-hmm. all sort of... I smoke cigars and I probably play poker, that sort of, you know... Chap, but he's also directed big, big things like Iron Man and Elf and oh. all these sort of big blockbuster oh. type and kids movies and things. Right. Anyway, so what he's done in this film is he's kind of um, gone a bit um, low key and made a sort of small film, but also featuring all these famous Hollywood people. So it's sort of his tiny, tiny backyard film that's got Dustin Hoffman and Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Vergara and John Leguizamo, which I love because I can just say John Leguizamo. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, and the theory of this film, or the thesis, is that he's this sort of hot chef who's... um, working in California and gets this terrible review mm. and then gets into a massive fight uh, on Twitter and then becomes a sort of social media meme because he starts attacking this guy in the restaurant. Anyway, he drops it all and um, starts a food truck and rediscovers his passion for food, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's a kind of heartwarming story of rediscovery, but it's also got these unbelievably great food sequences in it. So it's all about the food. And 
it's it's real food porn and beautifully shot mm. and he's clearly learned how to cook to a really high standard so there's all these close-ups of him like chiffonading things oh, it's fantastic. like it's total porn and in the end um in the credits there's all these sequences of him being shown how to do these complicated things by this <laughs> kind of amazing chef who was his consultant on the film but anyway it reminds me of um you know we, our earlier conversations um i don't know whenever it first came out about the trip that, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That yeah. great Rob Bryan, yeah. Steve Coogan series yeah. and film and series that's the film, um, where the food is you know part of the plot line obviously, but it's also just incredibly lovingly shot. So great. it becomes like a character. Oh, and great! This, this is a great, great. Like it's a really good film. It's sort of I hadn't even heard of it. Well, I know, but I think it like it was it, it was a sort of small release. Apparently, it was a really cheap film, and it only made like forty million dollars or something. So really, just useless. But it's just and look, the story is it's kind of heartwarming. It's not revolutionary filmmaking, but what makes it for me so lovely is this um, incredible attention to detail mm. of the food, which is always you know a kind of a you know in the Harry Met Sally scene in the cafe you don't remember the brownie do you really <laughs> bring back the brownie the brownie takes centre stage anyway so I saw a film Yabu Sucks wow that's what have amazing. you been doing um, just I was going to say about the trip actually I was just thinking my favourite moment in that which had so many great little moments oh. come come Mr Bond <laughs> And it was, I loved the, because um, Steve Coogan, they're doing a impersonation, well, they're doing heaps of impersonations, Michael Caine and whatnot. Anyway, then they're trying to do. A, he was only supposed villain. to blow the doors off. <laughs> yeah, it was so it is, good. Like, that series is the ultimate series for people who like to repeat you oh, know, yeah, annoying true. film and television show catchphrases. And you become that person. Exactly. It's like living with a, a room full of Monty Python Ugh, fans yeah, or people that. who really like With Nail and I. Oh, yeah. I can't I can recite that. that whole film. Sorry, I can. Kill it before it makes you friends with us. <laughs> Um, and I love the cutaway of Steve Coogan's face when Rob Brydon does the come come Mr Bond because Steve Coogan's tried it about a million times and they've been okay and then Rob Brydon just smashes it out of the park with how he oh. does it and they have that cutaway of Coogan's face where it's just like a combination of despair hatred envy <laughs> envy See, that's <laughs> I mean the, the series we're talking about is um, stars Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon it's called The Trip and it's these two they are playing themselves, these mm. two very well-known comedians, English comedians, and they um, are, have been invited to go um, on a tour of remote English restaurants and write about eating there. Or Coogan has been asked to do so, and because he has no date to take or his wife just left him, he takes Rob Brydon. And so they do this food tour where they're basically just trying to one-up each other on their you know, impersonations of Michael Caine. But the most interesting thing about that show, I reckon, is Steve Coogan because he's had the most incredibly weird life, hasn't he, Steve mm. Coogan? And, you know, there's this, there's always these sort of bizarre headlines like, oh, he's having an affair with Courtney Love. What? <laughs> yeah. think, what? Is that right? Yeah. Um, and the thing, I love shows too that blur a little bit between fiction and non-fiction. Oh, yeah. Because the trip made me think, is this actually what Steve Coogan's like? Is this actually what Rob Brydon's like? Rob Brydon was more yeah. sunny. So yeah. Whereas Steve Coogan was sort of quite depressed and a oh, bit... Actually misanthropic. Like, just yeah. really... You just yeah. think, wow. And that's why it's such a brave show for him to make, I think. Because if he is really like that, and, or, I mean, mm. then it's a very 
it's a very scarifyingly honest thing to do for someone who is a movie star. You know, yeah. It's an unusual thing. And it's, I mean, I guess when you're making a TV show, even a, a factual show, I guess as that is, or even say as this podcast is, in order to make it more entertaining and mm. to differentiate the characters a bit more, for example, I know this will be a little surprise to you, but I play up my love of show tunes a little bit because I know no. it's a, because I know it's a point of comedy. <laughs> Otherwise, you feel that you'd be unrecognisable without your lovable tick. <laughs> that makes me just want to, yeah. <laughs> I don't break into show tunes quite as often in real life as what I do on the podcast. No, you don't. It's sweetie. part of my No, you really don't. Don't. Yeah, you don't. You're not that bad. Now I'm going that bad. Now I've got to um, say I'm just going to work this in early, so because it fits with the way we opened this podcast, which was us just bumbling around yeah. trying to find a room in which to record it. Mm. I also forgot after we explained a couple of episodes ago that my husband went to great trouble to buy us a couple of microphones. I left them at home. I forgot to bring them. So Whilst then also whinging that nobody ever does anything for you at home. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're now back to being huddled around the iPhone. Yeah. Just chatting into In it. a breastfeeding room. But after our last episode, um, my poor long-suffering husband, who does a great job, he puts all the links on the website and basically Love I Love you, Phil. I just... The reason why, you know, even when people say something... Sort of such short-term memory loss problems that, you know, if someone will um, say something on Twitter like, oh, you know, you were talking about this last week, and I think, I can't even remember that. And then I go back to Phil's little list on I the know. website, which is www.chat10looks3.com. Am I right? It is. Well, after our episode where we were banging the car doors the whole time and getting roasted alive in your car, yeah. and then backed up by last <laughs> it week. It was no breastfeeding room. <laughs> We're in that city now. Backed up by last week's where we um, never once gave the website, the Twitter handle or anything like that. Yeah. Phil was listening to it and he just... The fact always... that I called you Harriet throughout <laughs> didn't help either, did it? That's right. The, um, Phil pulled his earphones out when he was listening to it. He just had like a look of despair on his face. And he gave me this, I guess you could describe it as pep talk, that began with... Um, you two are just a couple of bunglers. And it ratcheted, ratcheted up to, I've got goals for this podcast. I've got real goals. It was like I was trying to not laugh because he was, you know, he does such a good job. But it reminded me of, I don't know if you remember the opening titles to the TV show Fame. Um, you know, Fame, I'm yeah. going to live again. There was a spoken oh, word Coincidentally, bit. you're now required to sing. Imagine that. There's a bit in the middle of it where the dance teacher, Lydia, does a spoken word bit where she goes, you got big dreams, you want fame, well fame costs, and right here is where you start paying in sweat. <laughs> it was exactly like that. So I was trying not to laugh. Anyway, Phil then sent you and I an email. I know. Very, very Phil then sent you and me an email. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just correcting your grandma, love. No one else is going to do it. <laughs> friends with you. Why am I friends with you? Honest to God. So you want to host a national current affairs show? <laughs> Phil sent you and me an email. The reason she knows that's correct grammar is because if you weren't in it, it would just be sent me an email. I wouldn't say sent I an email. Exactly, so yeah. it's a little tip for all you at home. Don't say we never teach you anything on this podcast. My glasses are fogged up. <laughs> so Phil sent you and me a gentle email with some did. suggestions about things we might like to consider and he very helpfully also wrote a script 
for us to use in every podcast. And he said, just please say this once an episode. And I would like to just read aloud okay. exactly Phil's I, um, script. I instantly deleted my copy, so I'll read off yours. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. Here's I'm not good with minor authority figures. Here's, I don't even think you've got a part. I think I just got Oh, yeah, right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you did until you picked me up on my grammar, yeah. and now it's just all me. Um, okay, so here's the exact, so I don't get in trouble or get dumped, here is the exact script. Well, that's the show for another week. Don't forget you can find links to everything we've been talking about on our website, chat10looks3.com. That's chat, the number 10, looks, the number 3.com. All the books, the articles, the YouTube clips, the show tunes, they're all there. We make new episodes fairly regularly, but if you want to be the first to know, you should really subscribe on our website or on iTunes. You'll never miss a podcast. Want to see a photo of those magnificent biscuit sales you made? Follow us on Twitter at chat10looks3. I promise they taste better than they look. Hey, we love doing the show and we want to keep doing it. So if you want to help, the best thing you can do is tell all your friends and leave a review in the iTunes store. And if you don't like the show, nah, maybe just keep your mouth shut, eh? No one likes a whinger. <laughs> Good. It's pretty solid. So I think every week we're just going to get that in. He's getting all Jackson dad on us, isn't he? <laughs> Next thing you know, we won't be able to see our friends anymore. <laughs> oh, God, this is turning into like the Fifty Shades I of Grey. I know, it's because of the breasts. <laughs> listeners that no one's got their breasts out here. Oh my god. No, that's true. Do you know, the last time I laughed this hard was actually only about three days ago. Did you see that um, oh my god, did you see that um, website it's like a Tumblr thing. What's the one with all the pictures? It's Tumblr, isn't it? It's not movie, that's GIF. Is that the pin yep. one? Yep. Interest. No. Oh, no. Oh, no, I don't know. Sorry, let's just, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, and it's this hilarious woman, um, who writes for a site or runs a site called The Toast and she's done this great series called um, Women Being Bored at Parties in Western Art. Oh, and it so just good. goes through all of these paintings and writes captions for what the women are saying. <laughs> it's mainly just watching these, like, these hilariously <laughs> awkward staged oil paintings of people playing the organ to a bunch of clearly <laughs> bored people and so on. <laughs> it's a fabulous one that just made me... I mean, I really was in tears... When I read, you know, the whole thing, it was just ridiculous. And um, there's one where there's a sort of foppishly dressed young man coming up to uh, two beautifully dressed young women who look sort of politely horrified. And one of them is saying to the other, quick, play dead. And the other one says, no, that's bears. <laughs> anyway, the funny thing is, of course, that it, it sort of, um, the funniness of it is just that you get this brilliant connection immediately to these characters and these paintings that are otherwise so removed from yeah. us. And so there's this kind of incredible joy in reinterpreting them with the kind of hilariously modern language. There you go, I've interpreted it in a way that's totally killed the joke. But anyway, <laughs> no, we'll actually, have a link to that and everything actually... else we talk about on our website, www. What? Oh, no. oh, God, Chat I, I, the number 10. Looks the number three. Um, now, just back to um, the cooking movie. The chef, chef was it called? Yes, chef. Mm. Okay. Um, have you seen the catering show? 
I could not love that more. Now, I know this is, this is one of those things that went viral about, I don't know how long ago, and we both missed it, and now we've both, both just gone, whoa, this is hilarious! And everybody else is like, yeah, we saw that one. <laughs> but, um, so these are these uh, two um, women, both called Kate, hilariously, um, both kind of comic writers, actors, comedians, Kate McLennan and Kate McCarthy. That's my favourite thing about it, McLennan and McCarthy. I know, it's so it's good. so good, and that's their real name. Yeah, I know. Awesome. Anyway, carry on. Uh, and they've done this sort of spoof, not very long, um, online um, cooking show, which is ostensibly about one of them trying to cook for the other's incredibly advanced array of um, eating restrictions and allergies and she's got irritable bowel syndrome it, it's obvious from the get-go but there's something about the way they just clunk through these you know on, on one show they review the thermomix and on one show they attempt to quit sugar um like sarah wilson and oh god it's ridiculously funny it's it's, it's, it's what i love about them is that they're so abandoned there's no they're not really it's a very natural kind of humour, but so bonkers that you just want to be friends with them both immediately. And, and I love the sort of passive-aggressive um, behaviour from the foodie one towards the food intolerant yeah. one. Yeah. Like, there's one where they're making risotto, she says, and the, the foodie one's got this sort of forced cheerfulness. Yeah. And it's like... Um, so Kate's going to make the gluten-intolerant gluten risotto, and I'm going to make one with flavour. <laughs> <laughs> It's very funny. And the Thermomix episode, which I think is episode four, um, is hilarious as well if you know anyone with a Thermomix, the sort of cult of um, Thermomix that does a, a really thermomix wonderful Thermomix is perfect day. for, um, if you've ever um, fancied joining a cult but don't have the energy for all the group sex, then this could be. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> I've got a friend with a Thermomix and she's made me some delicious stuff, but when she was telling me about it, she was saying, it's fantastic, you can just throw everything in. Now... I'm all for that if I can literally throw everything in, like, can I put unpeeled whole carrots in there and will it deal with them? Can I put unbrowned meat in there, not chopped up? Like, that's so you are I'm... now the person who is the same person who says, all oh, right, so if you're vegetarian, what are your shoes made out of? Hmm? <laughs> How perfect is it? This is a perfect thing. Not that perfect. That's can true. I put a phone in there? I'm getting the vibe like you might have a phone maybe. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah. But I actually went round to a friend's house um, about two weeks ago who does have a thermo thermomix, and she made the whole dinner. They made, I should say. It was a joint effort. Um, and the thing that was really the best thing was the salads. Like it was just the salad. Well, the the coleslaw choppage was oh. very very good, mm. and. Uh, because I really hate, I really like coleslaw, but I really, really hate chopping Oh, do you cabbage. not like chopping? I quite like chopping. I find yeah, it relaxing. Yeah, cabbage, annoying. Oh, cabbage is hard. Yeah, yeah. cabbage is just, oh, It's funny when I say things like, but I really find chopping, you know, relaxing. I think, was there I a time when washing machines started there where women were like, I really just, find using the washboard yeah. just extraordinarily relaxing. is just, you know, mm, <laughs> so, so useful for severing my own digits occasionally. Um, what have you been reading? Uh, ah, ah, right. So I went away last week. And I bought on eBay a book that I'd been really looking forward to reading. Now, it sort of springs from a conversation that you and I had either on or off this podcast, I can't remember, about um, weird kind of legal cases and murder cases and stuff. And you remember the Cat Protection Society murders in I Queensland? Do. I know you do, I because do. you've got a file on it. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, someone did write a book about that case, and 
I wasn't really aware of that, and I found it. I think I bought it thinking I'll give it to you, and then I um, forgot to in my adorable way. And then I took it away, and I... Such an interesting case. So this was the case where, in the 90s, um, there was a, a vet in um, Brisbane, um, Alice Suburban Brisbane, I think it was, um, found like, horrendously murdered, like really over-murdered, like stabbed thousands of times. And it turned out there'd been this sort of, she was the president of Cat Protection Society, and there'd been these incredibly lengthy and complicated intern, internal battles in the Cat Protection Society, and so that became a huge part of the murder investigation. Anyway, so I bought this book that had been written about it, thinking, oh, this is going to be fascinating. And it was really, I'd really, I read it all, and I tried to get into it, but it was there was a lot of DNA sort of detail, and I think that the writer is a criminologist or um, a right. forensic person in some way. And so it was a really good example, I thought, of a book that didn't quite get there as a truly gripping true crime book. And it made me think about how hard it is to write a really great true crime book, because sometimes, like, that says to me, the cat protection murder thing, that just says, hello, Write me. Book, yeah. I'm already. I'm already intriguing. You don't even have to make anything up. Did he have access to the guy who was convicted? Did he give yeah. Oh. Uh, there was a, two authors. Anyway, look. I mean, it, it's an interesting book, and right. the authors are clearly like they're not idiots. They are, um, you know, obviously professionally accomplished in this field. But I felt like sometimes when you're too good at science, maybe you might miss the narrative. Well, you're not a storyteller. Right, I think, and I think it also made me think sometimes when you go in to write a story, it's more useful to know nothing about the mechanics of the stuff that you're writing about because that way you ask all the dumb questions mm. and you're not bogged down in wanting to seem, or, or, or like wanting to dot all the I's and cross the T's of the like deep down kind of granular detail mm. of the area that you're dealing with. Anyway. The, the thing that's interesting about having to write a non-fiction story, you know, whether true crime or mm. whatever, is the fact that you have to stick to the facts is both a blessing and a curse. It's, it's a blessing mm. because it almost imposes a structure or it helps oh, impose a structure, yeah. but uh, it's a curse because you can only work with what actually happened. And so, for example, one of my favourite true crime books is In Cold Blood by oh, yeah. Truman Capote. Yeah. Uh, and as we know, that you know the natural ending for that book, or for example, also The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer, another yeah. fantastic um, true crime book, uh, you need basically the person to be executed. If you're going to write a song about someone being executed, a book about someone being yeah. executed, that is the natural ending of the book. And so if you saw the film version of um, Capote with Philip Seymour Hoffman, it goes into how irritating it was that the case kept getting appealed. And right. So Truman Capote's waiting for the end of the book. And well, you're submitting to a life, aren't you, when you are when you are following a case and what happens if it doesn't resolve or if there's an appeal, you know, um, which is what happened to Helen Garner when she was um, writing This House of Grief. I mean, you were, you surrender as a writer any sense of control and you have to make up your mind, I guess, um, about which way you're going to jump on what you think happened. And often these cases are so weirdly difficult. But, I mean, Truman Capote was, um, you know, he was, he was criticised from a bunch of um, angles. 
and you have to remember that when he wrote In Cold Blood, it was a highly experimental model. I mean, it's That's the right. most copied model now ever because it is the definitive true crime book. But um, he, in interviews around that, he talks about his experience of being in this kind of Kansas town where he's this kind of, you know, queen, basically. You know, he's, he's very yeah. different from all the people around there. I think he made a virtue of that in the book, but there was a lot of criticism that he kind of utilised those two men who were convicted and kind of profited off them and then dumped them. You know, yeah. a, it, it becomes a very personal kind of... And there's thing. a lot of issues always in those type of books around a kind of controversy about the recreation of dialogue because if sure, you were yeah. not directly in the room, and, and you frequently not if you're reporting on something that occurred, mm. can you report in direct quotes dialogue? Well, you're you... novelising it yeah, to that that's extent. Right. But, of course, when you breathe, when you put flesh back onto the bones of remembered conversations, which is what um, murder trials do all the time, you are necessarily adopting your own version of what the mood was like or how this thing was said, in what tone, in what context. And as a result, you are really, you know, hammering in a stake in um, this version of history. So, and you're dealing with real people's lives often when really traumatic things have happened. So, yeah. I, I imagine one of the worst things about writing true crime is dealing with the responsibility of depicting both dead and living people, living suffering people, in a way that's respectful and accurate. Yeah. The thing that appealed to me about the cat protection murder mm. story was that I, I, when I was a child, my mother uh, bred Persian cats for a while, oh. and I still even remember as a grown-up, like, what a unique world that mm. was of people with, you know, certain personality types and obsessions and, and whatnot. And I remember when I read that case around the time it occurred, thinking, yeah, it was all those sort of passions and, you know, like, nothing sort of matters... I think the smaller the stake, sometimes the higher the drama, and so that oh, I case agree. particularly... So I think local government is often the most yeah. vicious tier of government because... I would thought also cake shows would be probably... Competitive baking must yeah. be just full of great sort of political drama, I would guess. Oh, yeah, because there's rules and some people are really... I mean, my friend Sarah once got disqualified from the Canberra show, which is great but there was something about her tea cake had, you know, um, caster sugar on the side instead of just on the top or oh. something. She was out of there, <laughs> bundled out, you know. You can see how passions would be inflamed. Sure, sort of absolutely. Thing, or, so. you know, pigeon races, you Yeah. Know. Well, it reminded me of the cat thing. <laughs> I thought you could do a great book in the style of The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Oh, which, which I haven't read, but it's... It was... It was a great New Yorker article. I thought it was a bit of a stretch to work as a book, but yeah. basically she takes, I think from memory, I'm probably getting it wrong, but a guy who's been charged over something to do with or illegal orchid importation or something mm. like that, and she uses that case to get into the wor world of people who are orchid obsessives and professional orchid growers, and then explores that whole world. It's really, really interesting. Oh, and it's just a whole little by that. culture of stuff that you... Well, like, well, I was certainly completely unaware of until I read um, that book. It was really, really interesting. Um, do you just, know just before we finish on this, what did you think of the Executioner's Song? Like, I remember it being... It's, it's such a differently written book because it's incredibly long mm. and it's full of this sort of seemingly pointless detail. Like, I mean, but by the end of it, you're really in the rhythm of it. I found it absolutely compelling, even though on any particular page it would be someone going to the shop or, you know... I think it was... Really compelling. Firstly, he's a great writer, so mm. he, his style keeps propels you along. But it's also that thing of because you know when you read the book that Gary Gilmore has been accused of um, 
or convicted of and he's mm. awaiting execution. So then when the story unfolds, it's like you're watching this train wreck just coming and the, the right. trains are sort of coming at each other and so... So there's a dramatic irony to it. Yeah, and so that's what I thought, that you're sort of waiting to see... You know what the end is, but the fascination is, well, how on earth does it get to that point? Yeah. And so that kept me sort of rolling on. There's... um. I can't think what it is now, but I mean, there's obviously films and, and television shows that have employed that device really effectively. Oh, um, Damages was one where the seasons of Damages, which is a legal drama starring Glenn Close, would start with things... Hi! <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but we paused ourselves, and I don't know at what point we paused ourselves. Probably when I flicked it to silent, or the, well, maybe when the phone rang. Maybe. Maybe this phone is just smarter than both of us. Oh, God. I'm so it's sorry. It's a chance. I just, yeah. This has been a, just, we, yeah, <laughs> this has been a disgrace. Sorry, Phil. But, again, you know, you, you guys know what to expect if you're up to this long into it. Anyway, yeah. we were talking about um, Annabelle had gotten on to Health Skelter. Oh, yeah, just um, the challenge, the particular challenge of writing true crime about cases that everybody knows about, right? So it's not really a narrative task in the sense that, you know, you're, everyone's, you know... Um, oh, what's going to happen to Sharon Tate sort of thing. It's a, um, it's a description of how it all happened and um, how did it happen tying to it together. Tate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of... It's a very hard book to read because it's so horrible, but um, it's quite a good effort. Mm. Now, um, speaking of things that were hard to read, but um, I think really worth reading, um, I read a piece this week that... You know, people always say, oh, this is shocking, this is shocking. I read a piece that was genuinely shocking. It was about mental health, yeah. mental health services, and I feel like that's a topic that I've heard a lot about. We've reported a lot on 7.30, so I know that it's a deficient area. I was still genuinely shocked by this piece. It was written by... <clears throat> sorry, written about a fashion photographer called Russell James who's very successful internationally, and his daughter, who has had... He basically said from childhood, really, he thought from birth, even d demonstrated signs of mental health issues, and then in her teenage years became really, really unwell, and it's persisted well into adulthood, and it was about the family's struggle to get her the treatment that she needed, and mm. he explained in very compelling detail just the lack of connectedness between the system and various carers, and then... Sadly for their family, their other daughter got cancer, which she recovered from, but he contrasted then when his other daughter got a physical ailment, how well-coordinated and amazing all the care was that she was given. Um, and so it just drew this extraordinary contrast between the physically ill daughter and the mentally ill daughter, and oh, it was just horrifying. I think what made that piece so awful is it starts with this incredibly confronting image of his daughter just who's um, harmed herself and is just, it's, it's the ultimate image of a helpless child, basically, which is so confronting. And he talks in this article, too, about the fact that he hasn't talked about all this before now. He sort of kept it hidden. And he says it's time to stop keeping these things hidden because you would never not be open about a child of yours that was um, so in physical trouble that they needed life support or a kidney transplant or something like that but what about if you have a child who can't stop cutting themselves and um, taking drugs and, and running away and abusing themselves in all sorts of ways and it was just god it was just a terrifying article to read and that um, and that juxtaposition of the physically ill child with the mentally ill child was just so heartbreaking and he says you know look my other daughter 
gets cancer and all of a sudden there's like 10 professionals hunched over her, everybody's exchanging Worked notes, together. everybody knows what's going on. And my other child, you know, readmitted again and again to kind of emergency psychiatric care and there's a psychiatrist there for an hour a day and there's no continuity of care and so on. Just And the description of like when the psychiatrist would come for an hour a day and that he described it was like starving people in Africa running for food or water trying to get desperately um, the attention that they wanted. There was a lot of scenes in it that were really confronting actually about the people being drugged just to keep them under control yeah. and uh, just yeah but look it's it's worth reading and it's even if you feel like oh I've heard that story mental health you know da 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 it, it was actually something different and really affecting I thought um now we better end on a more cheerful note than that I think um can I just tell you about a couple of quick things that I've been watching yes please um Veep which is oh, it's back that? it's back I'm so addicted to Veep and the fact it. that there's a new series is like a little present that has been left over for Christmas that you found under your bed. Exactly oh right. Um, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus in a series written by Armando Iannucci from The Thick of It uh, and she plays the Vice President of the United States. It is so funny. It's just laugh aloud funny every couple of minutes. Um, I also knocked over, I've got to read a whole lot of things for the Sydney Writers Festival and I knocked over Deborah Oswald's new novel Useless. Oh yeah, right. She's the writer of Offspring, the mm. primary writer on Offspring. It was great. It was light, but she's got a lovely touch. It was very human and it really held my interest. I was looking forward every night to getting into bed and reading it. It's about a guy who tries to kill himself because he's made a complete hash of his life. He's an alcoholic and um, messed up his marriage and he's let his friends down. And then he decides to kill himself, but he doesn't succeed at that either. And then he decides, I'm going to do something worthwhile. I'm going to donate a kidney to a stranger. Huh. And so he tries to get himself back together so he can do that. And it sort of follows his journey um and yeah it was good i've really enjoyed it it was a good read mm, how about you reading anything else um yes yes <laughs> um i um i'm gonna get cracking on that kate grenville book um oh, that yeah. she wrote about her mother um i haven't actually started reading it but i'm gonna talk to her at the melbourne writers festival i think oh, so great. i'm really looking forward One to reading that. that and also after i um watched chef i um picked up a book that i've read before but it just I was reminded of it by that film just because of its completely exhilarating attitude to food and that's a book of essays by Jeffrey Steingarten who used to be the food writer for American Vogue and he writes about food like no one else. Mm. He has an obsessive compulsive fascination with detail and so there are the, the chapters that were very long articles um, in the magazine in this book and it's called uh, The Man Who Ate Everything. Um, is they're all obsessively devoted to one ingredient or one product that he tries to recreate. And the one that I read last night was one of my favourites where he's a great French fry fan and one of his friends tells him that um, this great French restaurant where he loves to eat the fries, um, their secret is that they cook it in horse fat. And so the whole like 10,000 words is all about his attempts to import horse fat illegally <laughs> to the United States so that he can recreate it in his you know, Manhattan apartment, it's just... Does it end God, with him having funny. to kill his own horse? I'm not going to be a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> right, we are out of time, so thank you once again for persisting with our just oh. non-stop giggling. And they won't be back. Carry on. This, uh, is this is it. It's, it's over, all over. It? It's all over. <laughs> Farewell. <laughs>